1: Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
0: Pushkin. Hey, y'all, it's Justin Richmond. Like all of us, Rick Rubin has been thinking a lot about fear lately. And few people on the planet understand fear in the same way as Rick's good friend, david blaine david has made a career of pushing his mind and body to the limit with crazy public stunts like staying awake for 63 hours while standing in a block of ice in the middle of Times square or fasting for 44 days while suspended 30 feet in the air in a plexiglass cube in london feats that blew my mind growing up so rick thought david might be a great person for y'all to hear from about facing fear obviously this conversation isn't about music but it does touch on one of Rick's other great loves, magic. When he was a kid, Rick studied magic. And since then, magic's become so much more than just sleight of hand for him. He uses the idea of pulling something out of nothing in his music making. So it makes sense that he would turn to one of the best living magicians for words of wisdom. In this conversation, David Blaine runs through his most legendary public stunts and explains in excruciating detail what he went through physically and emotionally at each step. He also explains his relatively simple formula for getting through physical and psychological stress. The secret, it turns out, is that we can all handle a lot more than we think. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and David Blaine, who connected recently on Zoom.
2: The, The reason that I wanted to talk to you is I'm feeling a collective fear in the air. I feel, like I, I feel like I'm not feeling my fear so much as I'm feeling everybody's fear, that there's like a cloud of fear in the air. Right. And I started thinking about different times in my life I've been afraid of something or people I know who have insights into fear. And I remember when I was learning to spend time in, the ice, in an ice bath that the longest I could ever stay in was a few minutes until I did it with you. And when I did it with you, your perspective on it opened my mind and helped me deal with the fear of staying longer. And you talked me through it. And in that experience, um, it opened me up to conquer a fear. So I want to talk to you in general about the idea of conquering fears. Sound Mm -hmm. good?
3: Yeah, that's great.
2: What's... uh? Tell me a little bit about your relationship to fear.
3: Well, uh, I'll, you know, I, I mean, I guess my, my outlook on everything was already, my mother gave me this confidence as a kid, but when she was really sick, when she was dying, instead of focusing on the difficult part or the sad part or the painful part, she looked at the beauty and everything. So she didn't focus on herself and complain. So she, she made death very poetic and very beautiful, which I think is like one of the best gifts you can give your kid because that immediately made me not afraid of the unknown which is death. but as far as I was always pushing my body to do things that were like difficult and probably dangerous since I was five years old and here's the simple formula for it simple formula is you just you don't just jump into the unknown you go step by step by step by step slowly. So if you go, like if I was to say, okay, I'm going to hold my breath for 20 minutes, I'd be afraid that I was going to have cardiac arrest. Death, I'll be dead. But you don't start like that. You say, okay, well, I did three and a half minutes when I was a kid. There's people that are free divers that have done this amount of time. Let me train with the best people. Let me slowly build a resistance or a tolerance and understand the pain that I'm going to go through so I could process it and fight it. So my outlook on the corona, and obviously I'm not a doctor, so I can't give advice, but the way I look at it is you have to do the things that you know are best. So you clean your diet up. You don't eat products that create mucus like dairy or processed sugars or breads or things like that. You have ginger, you have garlic, you have, you know, 16 ounces of water before every... Anything that you drink, you keep yourself hydrated. So you do all the things that you can to really be ready for the fight. Because fear, like let's say you're an asthmatic, which I was as a kid, and have a smaller than average lung capacity, it's scary. Think I'm corona is gonna could give me pneumonia types, you know, and my lungs could shut down. So what I wanna do is if I was a smoker, which I'm not, I wouldn't touch cigarettes because why do anything that can make the virus that much more, you know effective in its path to destroy you. So that's number one. Number two is you follow all the rules. You know, don't go near people as much as you can. Try to avoid contact other than the people that you're quarantined with, obviously. And then for me, the other thing that I really like to think about, which is, um, I would say, if you also study it from the point of view, and I'm not saying that, that this is right or wrong, this is just my perspective, but the reason we don't want the virus to spread as quickly as it's spreading because you don't know you have symptoms. You're not aware of it. You don't feel anything often, and you're very contagious, right? So you don't want to spread everywhere. Not that we couldn't fight it. It's just that you don't want the hospitals to suddenly become flooded, which is what's happening, and then everybody's losing the hospital beds, the respirators, and it's a shutdown. So it's not that you want to fear the virus. You want to do the right precautions to protect, not even just yourself, everybody around you. So I think knowledge is basically the best way to overcome fear. Now, as a kid, my mother, the only fear she gave me is when she saw, not cockroaches, because we grew up with them, right? But when she saw, like, spiders or certain bugs, she got, ah! So I was always afraid of, like, little bugs, not cockroaches. But I was afraid of every other little bug, so my magician friends would come over. We'd be brainstorm magic. And like, I'd see a bug and I'd go, ah! And they thought I was joking, right? But I wasn't. So to get over that fear, I would have people come over with bugs, insects, spiders, cock, you know, everything. And I'd play with them. But that's temporarily getting over it. So a fluke happened and I really got over my last fear, which was of insects, certain insects. So I, I took my brother to Botswana. And uh, he's the most afraid of everything. So I can't teach him how to get over that. But anyway, we go to Africa and we're in these little tents and we're with the guy who died. Who's, he was the lion man. He goes out with the lions. And he actually looks like a lion. And he brings a roll of toilet paper, no weapons, nothing. And he calls out with the wild lions. And when they attack him, you can see it on YouTube, he would throw the toilet paper like fake though, and the lions would jump away. This guy grew up. In the bush with the lions, so he and hippos, he would scare them. He, his presence was unbelievable. But anyway, so that night after we went out with the lions, and he crawls out with them, and he plays with the you know them while they're eating the zebra. He's really unbelievable, but. That night I went to bed and I gave my brother a a night vision thing that I had, some really serious high-tech one, which I shouldn't have done. So he hears something walking around his tent and then my tent, but really mostly around his tent. And, you know, I just assume it's an elephant, I don't know. But my brother looks through (laughs) and it's a hippo just circling it. And he hears that hippos are the most deadly animals and that. They'll just chomp you in half, right? So (laughs) my brother doesn't sleep the whole day. He's just looking through this thing. And but so what happened with me is while I'm in this tent, I'm being careful. Because even if it's an elephant, you don't want to get anything to happen, right? So I'm in this little tent alone. And I put my, my phone light on and I look up. And there's thousands of bugs all over the top of my tent. I'm like, okay, we're in this together. And I realized that those insects were my friends. I'm not even joking. And from that moment onwards, I was never afraid of insects. So sometimes it is just like a fluke thing. But often I think it's like, you know, the process of trying to understand the information to get over and to learn and to accelerate. So it's like, and I also look at things as a challenge. So like even with my daughter, when she takes a shower in the morning, we used to, I would tell her, okay, let's crank it to cold. You know, and I just want her, so when, when all of her friends won't go in the ocean because the ocean's cold, or her family, she goes right in. And it's just the mindset of like, I can overcome this, you know? So it's like, and, and that translates across the board. So whether you're running as hard as you can or holding your breath or, you know, standing up in one place for 73 hours, things like that that you have to endure, slowly build the tolerance, have an understanding of what you're really doing, do the research, study with the smartest people that you can, and, 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 and that's the best way to, you know, I, I think, to, to work on facing the fear in, in the most diligent and efficient way. How do you deal with the, um,
2: when you're in it, I'll give you an example. One time I was uh, body surfing in Venice with a, a mutual friend of ours, and the waves were getting big. And it seemed normal at first, and then the waves were getting bigger and bigger. And it was a pretty big day to begin with, but then the waves were getting bigger and we're out next to a pier, and then the waves started crashing over the pier, like really big. And I remember our friend looking at me and saying, um, you know, if if it keeps building like this, we're gonna be in trouble. And that was the last thing he said, and then he was gone. And then I'm sort of in the drop zone and just waves are crashing on me, and um, came really close to ground. And, And I remember thinking, I know the worst thing I can do is panic. So I know panic, panic will only hurt in this situation. But when you're being held underwater by waves or when you come up for a breath and a wave crashes you, even you, I, there's a conversation that goes on between, I know I'm not supposed to panic, that this isn't gonna help me. And the other voice is, there's no air,
3: we're panicking. It's hard to control. I think you know num- n- number one rule of the the 21 laws of the samurai is accept everything exactly the way it is and I think even in the worst situation when you panic and, and and go crazy and let it over you won't you won't win that battle so you kind of have to accept what the situation is and then in a very Careful and clever way, try to outmaneuvering it, but without fighting it, because you're never going to beat the ocean. You know what I mean? yeah. So, so you have to kind of smooth into it and have the faith that you can be under for a little more than you think you can. You can relax and kind of go go with it a little bit, which is the have only you, option. But have you ever had that
2: come up, like in the midst of a challenge? Have you had it
3: come up of what do I do now? Every time I'm holding my breath for a really long breath hold, my heart gets really weird and it does these strange things and that makes you get more focused on the heart and it doesn't help. So I've learned over the years, even when pushing to the extreme, you just accept it and, and go with it. So, you know, that, 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 that's the best thing that I've learned when I'm pushing to those extreme places and it gets a little out of control. Let's talk about each one of the things that you've
2: done. And then in each case, what were
3: the most difficult moments? So, you know, so when I did the first stunt it was Buried Alive. It was one Houdini died before he had the chance to do. And Kalush, Bill Kalush, you know, said, yeah, we can, you can go to Central Park, bury yourself. You'll sneak out and then you'll come back a month later. And so what's the point of that? Like, what's the fun of that? I'm going to really do it. And instead of doing it under dirt, like the Fakirs used to do it, I'll just do it in a see-through box. Because I was thinking, like, you know, I've seen my mom lay in a bed not moving for a very long period of time. I can at least lay in a little coffin for a week. And I was right. And I'd also read Siddhartha. So I had fasted as a kid. I had done, you know, those things. So I understood that that's all doable. So I fasted for a week before Buried Alive just to clean everything out because I knew I wasn't able to go to the bathroom. I'll be the number two in the whole thing. And I put a coffin in Bill's living room where I was, I was sleeping in his pantry room in his kitchen at the time. And I put a coffin in his living room that I got in Queens. And I started practicing. I would just sleep in the coffin. I was like, yeah, this isn't so hard. And I would stay there for a couple of days. And I learned how to pee into one of those little bag things, whatever. I did the whole process. And I was clean. System's clean. Ready to go. Stunt's about to, st- <laughs> Stunt's about to start, and I was clean, just water. Bill, that type of thinking, it doesn't make sense to him. So he's like, here, have this. And he gives me a drink that was called a mango mama. <laughs> so I don't know why I listened to it. He's like, take this. I was like, Bill, I don't think so. He's like, yeah, you'll just pee it out, because I had a trucker's tube to pee So I drink the mango baba, and I do my first big stunt. I get buried alive in the middle of New York City, see-through the whole thing, and no way out for a week. Right away, like eight hours later, I'm like, oh, no. And I have to go to the bathroom, but a number two. And Rick, for a week, I had to hold it in. It was the worst, <laughs> so, so, anyway, anyway so, but you know, it's fine. So I do the stunt, ston- uh, you know, and it was difficult, and all that stuff, but that one, getting used to it, things that you don't think about, it's like, how am I gonna do a number one? There's people staring at me the whole time, day and night, it became really crowded. So it, it's it's like when people are looking at you around the clock and you have to pee, It's difficult. You don't think about those things when you're practicing in the coffin by yourself, right? So, what I would have to do in the beginning was I would close my eyes and I would just (laughs) pretend I was in front of the bathroom. It would take me like an hour. I'd be able to do the, you know, take a number one again, no number two the whole time. Um, But then eventually, by like day three, I'd be waving and smiling (laughs) and be like, (laughs) nothing. But so, no, but so the buried alive, that's done. I did it, and I always look at it. It's like I could do that like nothing, like easy, tomorrow. So, okay, so the next stunt was uh, the block of ice. Training for that, I would get an ice bath all the time. How did you would, get the idea for it, first of all? Um, after Buried Alive, I was, like, on an airplane, like, from coming back from somewhere really nice, and I just started thinking about an insect uh, in, a, in a piece of ember, like how cool that looked, the whole thing. And I was like, maybe I could do something like that with like a big piece of ice and then put it in the middle of New York so I looked frozen in the block of ice. And obviously it would be cut around me, two pieces. So step one was I went to an ice locker and just got in the ice locker to see how much I could endure, which is a nightmare. It wears you down quickly. Step two was I built an ice igloo, I, just blocks of ice together, like a regular ice carver put it together. And I was like, oh, this isn't so bad because the ice is against you, but it's enough away that it's actually like an igloo effect so you could handle it. Now, when I did the real block of ice, I got the ice from an iceberg in Alaska, so it was frozen at colder temperatures, so it's really see through. Did that block of ice, when we brought it in, um, there was a couple of things I hadn't prepped for at all. That You know, those unknown things that you don't think about. Number one, it keeps dripping on you over and over, which is kind of a weird form of just drives you out of your mind. Number two, you can't fall asleep because if you lean into the ice, you get frostbite and, and you'll have to cut off that part of your face, whatever it is number 3 standing up for that entire duration 63 hours i practiced it leaning and stuff like that but not for that length of time and then the the only thing that was to my advantage was it was november 27th to november 29 2000 and it was a warm november so the air that was coming through was you know 68 degrees which created the drop but it also really kept it not so bad of course the ice was rated now the Worst part of it that I could have never thought about at, at that time was sleep deprivation plus torture, meaning standing off the entire time, nothing to lean on, the ice radiating the cold against you, puts you in a hallucinatory state. Because you're trying to sleep, because your body knows to build the immune system and to function, you need to sleep. But you can't go to sleep because you know if you go to sleep. It's going to be really bad. So while you're in these situations, like I can stay awake right now for five days if I had a few people helping. But in that situation, very, very difficult. What happens is your brain touches into your worst fears. So your brain goes into whatever you're most afraid of And it puts that all over you. So I started seeing spiders crawling all over my body and all these weird things because your brain is trying to trick the other part of your will that's trying to stay awake to make you go to sleep. And when you don't go to sleep, you start having dreams and nightmares, but your eyes are completely open. So my eyes were wide open and I was having this insane hallucinogenic dreamlike like while awake state but not knowing if it was a dream or if it was fake and your brain is slipping away and the only thing that can get you along i think is i had support from a couple of people that i loved and trusted and they're like you're gonna be okay and it was enough for me to think that maybe they were right when the guy started cutting through the ice with the chainsaw i tried to grab the chainsaw i had no i didn't know what it was and you know, that one, because of the sleep deprivation, I always say I would never, ever do that again, ever. By the way, little things that go wrong is you have a catheter, which is like a trucker's tube, which is like a condom with a tube coming off of it. One of the PAs working on the stunt didn't know, and he was vacuuming underneath the water thing, and he hit that hose and, and like, oh, you know, but it, and your brain is already on a, so it's it's like exaggerated big time. I'll give you one example of what happened. So, you know, it was 24-7 in Times Square. So people, I mean, three days, but people could continuously come day and night. And somebody was in front of me. I mean, it was always crowded, but one of the people you lock onto, them, you feel comfortable. So one of the people was passing by. I went like, what time is it? It was like, you know, it was day three. The last day, that it was supposed to end around 10 o'clock or something like that. I was like, what time is it? And he said, he went, I think it was like around four, four something. He, so he went, four, oh, five. So I'm like, okay, four or five, That means I have about six more hours, I think. Okay, I can do this. So I wait for as long, like I wait for hours because I don't want to ask that question again. After waiting for hours, I look at somebody and I go, what time is it? And it's the same guy. And I didn't even realize that. And he goes, four. Oh, six. I'm like, ah! <laughs> but, you know, the Native American Indian, a lot of people use sleep deprivation, but in a controlled environment to go to that hallucinogenic dream light state, and it is incredible because there is a part of it that's like one of my favorite journeys I've ever taken. Not recommended to anybody ever, but there is a part of it that's like, wow, you know? Were you, were you able to explain what you were seeing and feeling the whole time? Everything, voices talking to you, through people appearing in the ice, everything that you can imagine that you're dreaming of, just, and it, just everything goes through your, your mind, your body, and, and it's, it's hyper real. It's, it's, it's like having dreams, but you're awake, and nightmares.
2: You, Do you have cameras on you the whole time? Yeah, 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 I was cameras
3: the whole time. Have you ever gone back? Oh and yeah! When you it? look at it, it's scary. My right. eyes are like really, really, really. It's scary, scary footage. Yeah, because yeah. I'm wondering how much of your perception
2: was what was actually happening. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, are there things that you imagine that happened that didn't uh, in that oh, process?
3: Yeah, for sure. But but like lots of people, like my my brother, my best friend. Josie, people that were there were looking at me and they, they, they knew that this was, um, this was not me. It, it was pretty scary. But at the same time, when I reflect back, I would never do that one again. But there's something about that part of it that was like one of the most incredible and scary but beautiful states that I've ever been in.
0: We'll be right back with more of Rick's conversation with David Blaine.
1: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Willie Nelson, Waylon
4: Jennings, Chris Christopherson.
0: How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore Sue Brewer and the new scripted audible original The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the Outlaw Country Music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash theboarsnest. We're back with Rick Rubin and David Blaine.
3: So what was the one after the ice? After oh, wow. the ice was 2000, uh, no, oh, Vertigo, when I stood on the pillar, 2002 in Bryant Park, which once again, you know, we had these little things to handle things that would come up and I was able to hold, it wasn't that tough that one. I still started to hallucinate just cause I didn't, I think standing up in one place for a long time, plus the stress of the body not sleeping and all that stuff. And so how high up you were up really high? Probably like 90 feet. I wanted it to be a hundred. And then I trained to jump, which was my favorite part ever, jumping a hundred foot into cardboard boxes, which not into an airbag, you know, which was my favorite part. But I, I trained and was so specific and knew I was gonna jump off and exactly hit the mark. But because I I had a mic on and they opened it so I couldn't tell everybody, stop with adding these boxes. And they all got freaked out because I, the buildings behind me, when I would look, because I was hallucinating, they started to look like animal heads. So I would see like a lion. And I was like, wow, I didn't know those buildings were shaped like lions. And they'd be like, they're not. Then they thought I was loose. So they thought I wasn't going to jump into the box. Right? So they made this huge thing. And I, anyway, so that kind of upset me, but that's all right. The other one that upset me was on the Drowned Alive. I want. I said, no matter what, if I don't get to the record, you guys do not pull me out. Period. Because I want to go for the record, and it like I cracked early, and I start black. I'm about to black out, and one of my best friends was in the front, and he yells, "Get him!" because he was so freaked out. So they jumped in and pulled me out before I got to like the number. Because the number is what's important to me. And on all the stunts, the numbers are so important. <laughs> Oh, and that's part of it. Also, is if you use numbers, like you use numbers to get there. Like, oh, I'm gonna equate this, so I'm gonna do, I'm gonna get to halfway. Then when I get to halfway, I'm gonna go backwards, and I have this much and this much and an eighth, and and you start working it backwards by numbers, and it really helps. So even when I'm running, like training, if I'm running around the loop at Central Park, you know, the six point two miles, or is, is, but what I do is I'll I, I count the steps. I'm like, okay, it's actually forty four hundred right feet steps. So I would count the steps to get around and then you can keep going because it's a numbers game. So you can get halfway, start the count again. So that that's another thing that helps me get focused is numbers.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting with numbers. I have a, a technique that I'll, I'll share with uh, to, to prolong things. And I find that it, it works in um, – you can do it with when you're exercising, but I also use it when I'm in the ice tub. Let's say I can do – 40 slow breaths when I'm in the ice yeah and 40 slow breaths is like on a typical day maybe 5 between 5 and 6 minutes and um if you change the way you count instead of counting every breath as one breath now mm-hmm. I count I use the number 1 for each of the first four breaths and then I use the number 2 Yep. For the next four breaths. Yep. Yep. And it's great. And it and after you've done it for a while, getting yep. to the number 40. And if you don't allow yourself to do math, which is a real key to it, you can't yep. allow yourself to figure yep. out what, nope. what it yep. equals. But something about keeping the numbers lower, even though you're doing it longer, in your mind, yep. you haven't been in that long. You, there's part of you, the the brain part of it doesn't kick in of feeling like you're getting towards the end. so it's a good it's a good
3: technique. And if you really think about it, it's like even when we push it at the, at the highest level, we're only pushing like forty percent. So if you really max out your like sixty percent you know hypothetical estimated numbers, but the the max out would be your breaking point, right so but which nobody ever gets to, but I'm saying so if you can trick your brain, you can override your body and deal with the pain of wanting to quit or shut down by fooling yourself. That's exactly yeah, what I
2: you do. Don't, you don't, you're not as aware of how hard
3: it is so soon. It takes away one of the, Every, that's exactly one of the thing I things I do. Rick, that's how I do everything. Everything. And by the way, the only other thing that I add to it is I never stop at the mark. I always have to go at least one over. Always because you train yourself to never quit before you get to the goal. So I have a lot of friends they will run like, oh, let's run a 5K and they'll stop at three miles. I'm like, you just had to go that little extra bit. You got it and then go more because then when you have to do the real task, you have that in your mind. Like I'm not going to quit until I not just get there, but pass it. So it's a numbers game. Okay. So now we're up to
2: the, so you've done the pillar. And you say it's easy, but still, standing on your feet for how many hours was it? That was only 36 hours. You, you were standing 90 feet in the air, so there's the...
3: the yeah, yeah, we didn't know how train for that. Yeah. I would put a flower pot. I lived on the 16th floor of a building in New York. I just put a flower pot in the little corner of the roof and just stand there all the time. Just stare down. That was it. So I just... Oh, I could... It's like, let's say you had to do it. If you had to stand up on a... a a book what's the big deal you have to stand up on a book for you could do it right so it's just that if that book is up 100 feet it changes your brain but really if you're committed to okay i'm going to stand on this platform for 36 hours you you just you're just committing to it so then you have to override the brain's impulses and you know oh this is too much you just got to figure so i just I built I built that one up slowly. I would just stand on flower pots on the top of the roof. By the way, one time the flower pot shattered on the top of the roof. That was crazy. <laughs> What's after the pillar? That was 2002. Then 2003, I went to London. Did 44 days in a box. That that one, once again, I I probably pushed it a little too much. But once you get over that point, once you get where you lose all temptation, all sense, you know, everything that you, all of your dopamines, your endorphins, everything goes away, and you're just on this sort of steady serotonin level where every the you start to see colors like you've never imagined. It's the blue is like you cry when you see, like, wow, when you see somebody smile, just a stranger, you both cry. It's like. It's this connective state where, where you have no, it's like you, you enter the spiritual and you completely leave the flesh behind. And that, that is a, a, yeah, that's, that's an experience that one of the most important, other than everything related to my door, but that's one of the most important experiences of my life. Do you, you attribute it to the fact that you weren't, it, in the other ones we're talking about,
2: there's, you're more uncomfortable. There's more of a sense of pain. This one, the,
3: the the 44 days was more just about the duration than the discomfort, I think. Is that right? Uh, I mean, you start to feel pain. Basically, if you read any book about extended fasting, it kind of hits the notes. It's like in about a month or 28 days, you really do, you start to have this sweet taste in your mouth. So I was drinking water the whole time. But around day 28, I started questioning harmony and everybody there. I was like, Bill, I was like, I would pour the water because I had a tube and it was pure H2O. So it was like no minerals, no nothing in it. And I would have a tube come down and I would drink it. I think that like the the people that supported this in London, like Channel 4, I was thinking they they must want this to keep going. So they're spiking my water with glucose, you know, I'd taste it. So I'd make Harmony, Bam, Bill, my brother. I'd pour the water down to my i say, taste this right now. There's sugar in it. I pour it down, they drink it, they'd be like, no. And I think that they were all in on it. So I'd get like a random stranger. I'd say, bring him all the way up. <laughs> do you have a cup? get a cup? And then I'd pour the water down, catch it in the cup, and taste, it. is it water? So all the the guidebook things of what happens during the fast, it really did actually happen exact. Um the information I had on how long I could do it for came from a physiologist at NASA. So he was, you know, they want to protect the astronauts. So they do all the due diligence, all the research. They look into the, the terrible records from World War II, things that most people wouldn't go into morally it's wrong, or ethically. So, so he would really, just to save astronauts, I used to say, okay, how long can a human actually go without food? How long can a human go with just water? And they had really accurate, specific notes of, of, of what could be tolerated. And it pretty much worked out exactly as I had assumed it would. And what what were the most difficult parts of that? So many amazing things happened. I have to say, if I was doing that fast by myself, it would have been impossible, which is why I put it in public. So public, all sides visible. I knew I would just have to do it. There's no cheating because you're as exposed as it gets. But if I was trying to do it by myself, forget it. But the only real difficulties is little things that you don't think about. Like, after that amount of time, even though I fasted and cleaned out my system, your body is processing. And, you know, I held, I held there was barely, but I held the number two in for the entire time. Obviously, most of it leads through sweat and through your breath and all that stuff. But And then you, you override it, and then you don't have to go over again. But that duration of that and then the only other real real difficulty i think was as you start to become really weak your you know your body goes into this sort of like you're very stable almost you're very you know minimalistic and all that stuff but your heart's moving differently because i guess from you know you're 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 eating you start to eat your organs and my bone mass index decreased 33 percent also and then what happens? You know, the Londoners, not the London, the media of London, you know, started to make this, 40, 44 days of this, let's make this a story. So people would like fly like toy helicopters with cheeseburgers on them around, but that didn't bother me. But what would happen is people would like, in the middle of the night, like shoot balls at the box. And it was really cool looking, you know, it was like this color month, but it was like that noise, because you don't think about that, the way it echoes. So it's like, ha, I wake up to that, you know, so that kind of thing, just a little crazy. But that's not the difficult part. Difficult part is, I think, around day 37, when I started to get, the heart started to feel like it was going to, it wasn't right. Right? Because it's decreased in size by a third or whatever it is that it lost. And we have those records. Because afterwards, I went to the hospital. We had the New England Journal of Medicine, Oxford Journal. We studied all this stuff. I gave the results you know, to science just because most people that do these things are like striking or hunger strikes. But anyway, so around that time, around day 37, day 38, the heart starts going. It starts to get really, really difficult because you think that you're going to collapse. You know, you get dizzy, everything you do, any movement. And, and my mother passed away when I was young. But um, before she died, she said to me, God is love. Uh, that was the that was the last words that she said, I and mean, she died in my arms. It was like I said, the most difficult and most beautiful that she could have given me. But um, so it, it around that exact time, I was like, <laughs> I said in my head, I said, "Mom, if you if you think I should keep going, give me a sign." And Rick, the Tower Bridge was in front of me over there. These kids start yelling, "David, David!" I see them right when I said that in my head. I'm saying that exact moment. And they have a rolled up white thing, right? And they open it up and they start walking down towards me. When they get close to me, they keep opening up. They open it all the way. They're holding it, like three of them, I think. And it says, God is love. I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah, I started crying. And then, you know, those kind of signs is simple, you know, or whatever it is that's enough to keep going or if it, you know, or if the energy is just out there and, and, you know, energy is never, so something she put out there that just happened to connect at the right moment, you know, those types of things. So I kept going and pushed to the end and, you know, that was that. But like I said, it was, it, and so it's like, when you get the chance in the vertigo, I had it too, in the box. I had, When you get the chance to just really watch the sun go up? go over the sky, watch it the whole way up, watch it the whole way down and all the way around, watch the river go up and down. It's amazing. It's funny that we never get to do that in real life. And then as soon as I was done with the stunt and I was in the hospital recovering, you know, somebody sent me a box from Harrods of food and I shouldn't have eaten for a couple of weeks because that's the most dangerous part. It's the refeeding syndrome, which is the paper that we published was about that. As soon as the doctor who thought I was also cheating, by the way, and Bill wanted me to take glucose vitamins with sugar, said no, Bill. And I was right because my body did go into starvation mode. So it was in the metabolic rate change to protect my... But anyway, so as soon as I started that, like taking from the box, taking the crisps and eating, you know, the bagels that were... As soon as you do that, the animal state returns. Everything changes, and then it's like your note the spiritual part of it, which is the most amazing part, fades away very fast. So you go from like this this state of like pure. There's no body. There's nothing. The colors, the wind, the sky, the sun, the earth, and then back into the you know. The, the, the normal world. So it, it, it is something that I wish like everybody could experience on some level because it is it and, and I think that's why those yogis and monks, why they do those long fasts because they find that place where serotonin is riding their brain levels. There's no endorphins. There's no dopamines. It's just a solid steady state. And you, and, it, and you find something that you could never, you, you could never imagine or explain. So what was after the, what, after the glass box, um, 2003. After that was the the, the drowned a lot. The water thing, that was my favorite one by far. Just the favorite across the board. I started holding my breath when I was five years old. Um, I was on the swim team. I had my feet turned in. You know, single mother, Brooklyn YMCA. All the kids beating me. So instead of swimming like normal, like them, because when you have to turn it, I would just swim straight. And I suddenly I'm able to keep up because I'm not breathing. So then I start going back and forth and I start realizing, wow, I could do that. And the coach is like, don't do that. I was like, I can do it. And I, and I did do it. And then the older kids would come to see me do laps without breathing. That was kind of like that. And then they would compete against me. So we'd go underwater and I'd beat them all, the older, older kids. So I'd say, listen, you can go up and down as many times as you want. I'll stay under the whole time. So I was able to, while they went up and down, I was able to last like six of theirs, but they didn't know the technique. You know, going up and down and doing that is not as efficient. It's just staying calm, right? Which is what I was doing. So the breath hold began there. And then I loved it. And then I discovered Houdini at that age as well and was reading his books. And he was the underwater king. He had a record of three and a half minutes. So, you know, young teen. I was able to do three and a half minutes, no problem. I'd, pull, I'd get out of the pool and black out, by the way. Didn't know that that's what was going on. And then had the idea of putting a sphere-shaped aquarium in the middle of uh, Lincoln Center and just living there like the human aquarium type thing, but like, is a is like a, yeah, is a, just a ball in the middle of New York. And seeing how long it would stay. So it was also the longest that somebody was submerged Underwater continuously. It was seven days. So I spoke to a guy that had the record that lived under a lake and he gave me all the tips and (laughs) texts. He stayed under the lake for like five days and he's like, here's what you need to do. So I kind of listened to him, studied what he was saying, and then yeah, just did it. Didn't anticipate what would happen to the hands and feet. That, you know, it's pretty, the pain is pretty intense because uh, all the oils that protect you leave and then, you know, the wrinkled but extraordinarily you know, beyond anything conceivable. That that's and, and the pain that comes with it with them being that wrinkled and just from expansion and all that stuff is crazy. But um drinking liquids through a tube, you know, stayed there seven oh, another thing you didn't anticipate, sun. That sphere is like a magnifying glass, big piece of glass filled with water. Sun's going through it actually burned the hole in the metal walkway behind. It was that how so I i was in there for a week my back was burnt but like not just burnt like red i mean like like burnt like burnt burnt and it stayed like that for like seven months or something you know it's just like yeah it was and the pain is just insane but you don't think about those things and you're on water so it kind of negates it on some level until after where did uh where did you end up with the breath hold uh Well, I did actually with oxygen. I did 20 minutes and two seconds, and just straight breath holding, I had gotten up to seven forty-seven. The record was nine oh eight. The guy had a huge advantage over me. Not that that matters, but he was very skinny, very tall. Tom Zetis, you know, and 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 his lung capacity, his total lung capacity was almost double mine. It was wow. it was pretty extraordinary. Wow. So, I mean, but that that doesn't matter, you know. But but anyway. I thought somehow what I thought was by living in the sphere, which is why I decided to do the sphere before it, by living there, I would acclimate, become conditioned. But also I thought that by, by not eating for that amount of time, metabolic rate would slow down and suddenly I'd be able to hold my breath much longer. That's what I was hoping for, but yeah, it, does, it doesn't really work. I started cracking at 7.08, so it doesn't really work like that. Then I went back trained, to pure oxygen, hypothetical record at that time was 10 minutes, there was uh, no real visuals on it, so I just started training, just static apnea, breath holding with oxygen, so <laughs> and then I got my first try, and I had a bunch of friends there that were, you know, top neurovascular surgeons, and doctors, pulmonary, and when they saw that I was under for 15 minutes with nothing, they pulled me out. Because in their mind, it's like the body can't endure that. That's not possible. And I was like, why'd you do that? I was fine. And came in with pulmonary expert, with telemetry and everything attached. I had done a 20 minute and two second breath hold before the Oprah one, which was 1704. 20 minute and two second breath hold. Heart rate dropped to eight beats per minute. Wow! And they had never seen that. And so they pulled me out once again. I was like, why'd you do that? They were like, because you were about to go into cardiac arrest, cardiac death. I was like, perfectly fine. The body does things. It adjusts, it adapts. And I don't know if there's something to just accepting the situation and riding it through that helps, but it was, it was pretty amazing. And so when I had to do the world record, which Tom Zetas pushed it right before I did, he went on Regis and Kelly and pushed it to 1632 from a hypothetical 13. So now it's like, okay, I gotta nail this. So when I got to 2002, I felt like when I do Oprah, I'd be okay getting to the 17 uh, past 1632.
2: In In a long breath hold, what are, the, what are the phases of what's going on mentally?
3: You want to, ideally, it, it sounds silly, but you want to keep your eyes closed. You want to do it. Your, your brain takes a lot of energy. So you want to kind of minimize on everything just to preserve O2. So you want to, Shut everything down as much as possible. And what I do is I just, I, I used to go through the alphabet, go through names, visit all different places, absorb drift under the ocean, go into the abyss of the ocean, and just kind of go all over. But then when, so when I did it on stage and stuff like that in my show, I, I didn't do that. I'd move, I'd go upside down. But going upside down, I realized because Houdini used to do it upside down. And I realized why I think while he was doing it is because if you think about the way, mammals that are underwater creatures they big breath and they die this way so if you think about it when you're upside down head first your lungs aren't forcing the air out they're forcing the air. it's that position the air is going into the lungs so it's like by being upside down it is a much easier position to hold your breath the only problem is getting there it takes a little bit of energy and then getting out of it but when i'm upside down in the water tank i can kind of relax and almost go to sleep not go to sleep i mean go to that place you know Interesting. Makes sense. So what was the last one? Um, well, after that, when I got really cocky and, and and my trainer working on it, he's like, you can never do a stunt that you didn't prepare for. You need to do it and understand what you're doing. I did this upside down thing and I figured I had done like, you know, six hours upside down. I was like, I can do 60 hours of this. As soon as I go upside down, I'm up to six hours. I didn't try peeing upside down. So the first time I pee, it's like, oh, you know, nightmare. I'm upside down. And anyway, that that one was a disaster, (laughs) public disaster. Then I shut down for a long time. I did something after that with the electricity, where I was in a Tesla coil, 73 hours standing up, which was really hard because the expansion of the ankles started to rip through the metal chainmail Faraday suit that I was wearing. And, you know, one time, and I had electrolyte water I was drinking, and when I spit it out, the arc hit it. The water went and just blasted into my heart. And even I think I had burn marks on my toes. So that that one was a really, really difficult one. And that's the last one I did. My daughter was born. I was like, I'm not doing anything anymore like this. I'm done. So I just went kind of back to, you know, the, the magic stuff. But something I've been working on has been, that has been so fun and amazing right now it's obviously you know we're just working it out and dreaming about it playing with it and thinking about it but there is one that i love that's the opposite it's not about you know survival and it's more about the opposite end of that it's more about poetry and beauty and you know things like that hopefully right but still
2: even in the shows that i've seen i've seen you do stuff where you still end up you know, being in a tank of water for a really long time.
3: (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I can't. Yeah, I love those things I love. And to me, you say, oh, how's that magic? To me, that's the real magic. Like, to me, it's like the body's capable of doing things that we can't even imagine that the body could withstand or do. That's magic. A human can go without air for 20 minutes and two seconds, or now the record's 24 minutes and three seconds. That's magic. How does the body do that?
2: (laughs) Any other things that you've done? Um, just think about any techniques or anything that you've learned
3: that are helpful in terms of people who are facing a struggle. I think rule number one is accept everything just the way it is. So that's rule number one. And then try everything in your power to understand and to solve for what the best possible approach to fixing the situations. I think a lot of it starts with like correcting little things that you can manage yourself. Beautiful. Cool, man. Thank you for telling me stories. (laughs) Thank you, Rick.
0: Thanks again to David Blaine for jumping on a Zoom call with Rick. David's latest special, The Magic Way, aired on ABC earlier this month. Check out abc.com for details. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez of Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending?